0: All right, if you got your Bible this morning, meet me in Mark chapter 16, Mark 16, we're starting a brand new series today called Gospel Truth, and I'm so, I always say this, but I'm so excited to share this message with you guys, because I feel like God put a series of messages in my heart about four or five months ago, and now is the time to get into these, so very much looking forward to this today. We're going to jump into Mark 16 in just a moment and look at a specific picture toward the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. But I want to take a minute and just let you know why it is that we are doing this series. You know, a lot of us, we will define the gospel in different ways. And I've heard it said that truth is like a diamond, and I kind of feel the same way about the gospel message, the message of Jesus Christ. I feel like it's kind of like a diamond, where if you were to hold a big diamond in your hand and turn it, with every turn, you get a new picture of the beauty of that diamond. And I kind of think the same thing applies to the gospel message, because every time we, or the longer that we walk it out, live it out, apply it to our lives, it's like we're looking at it longer, and the more time that goes by, the more angles of its beauty appear, and the more application we find in our life. And I think all of us might define this word gospel the same way, we'll get to that in a second, but the way that it applies to our life is incredibly multifaceted, and Here's what's interesting about it. I think, if I'm just being honest, over the years of having conversations with people when we talk about the gospel, I think a lot of us tend to look at the gospel from one specific perspective, mostly. We look at the gospel and we see it simply as a doorway through which we walk to enter into salvation. And that's true. We do walk through, we receive this gospel message into our heart, we make a decision to follow Jesus, and it's that gospel message that walks us into salvation. Very true. But guess what? The gospel is a whole lot more than just a doorway into salvation. It's something that we're called to walk into and then walk out in our everyday lives. The gospel meets us where we are, it invites us into a relationship with God, and then it charges us with living our lives just like Jesus did. I'm gonna read that one more time so everybody catches this. The gospel meets us where we are, invites us into a relationship with God, and then charges us with living our lives as Jesus did. Does everybody catch that? Y'all awake this morning? You guys lost that hour of sleep last night, didn't you? It's okay, I felt it too when my alarm went off. Trust me, I was yelling at my phone. I'm like, no, I don't wanna get up just yet. But hey, I'm awake, y'all awake too? All right, here we go. So the gospel applies to every area Of our life. And over these three weeks that we're gonna be in this series, we're gonna look at this from three angles. We're gonna talk about how the gospel is confrontational, it's a confrontation, it's an invitation, and it's a deputation. Bit of a funny word, we'll get into that in week three. But the gospel is confrontation, invitation, and deputation. And today we get to talk about how the gospel is a confrontation. How many people just love it when you have a confrontational conversation? I think if I was to try to describe my personality type to you, I would say that I am a non-confrontational personality. I like comfortable relationships. I don't like confrontational relationships. I like comfortable interactions, not confrontational interactions. And here's what's funny about this. This is just the way that God works, okay? I've been putting this message, these messages together for a few weeks now, but yesterday I sat down at a local coffee shop and I'm sitting there, I'm working on this outline, putting some thoughts in and going back through the scriptures. And as I'm sitting there, I take out my computer, I put in my earbuds and at the table right next to me, two guys sit down and one man in a very loud voice begins to voice his displeasure with the guy sitting on the other side of the table. And I'm like, What's happening here? And I look over and it becomes very clear that this is not a comfortable conversation. This is a confrontational conversation. And I'm not joking when I say this. There was a moment at the beginning of the conversation where I thought that the conversation might come to blows because the guy's like, listen, I just wanted you to have the opportunity to tell me what you're upset with me about because I got a few things to say myself. And I'm like, oh man, this is about to get really interesting. (laughs) Now listen, if you wanna know what kind of personality type I have, I'm not even a part of the conversation and I'm sitting there so uncomfortable of what's happening at a totally different table. See, I like to think that my personality type, you know, I've never taken one of these personality profiles that I remember, but one of the things I, that I would say about my personality type is that if I could describe it like an earthly element, my personality type is like water. I can go with the flow. I can fill in the gaps, I can adapt to the temperature of my surroundings, and if things are cold in the room that I walk into, I tend to freeze up. If things get warm and a little bit heated, my water begins to boil, I evaporate, and the whole thing's over real quick. (laughs) That's my personality type, but here's the deal. I totally prefer comfort over confrontation. And the reason why I say all this to you today is because I think many of you might relate to that. Some of you are like, Confrontational conversations, I never have those. That's because you're the one who's always engaging in the confrontational (laughs) conversation. But funny enough, I sat in the coffee shop yesterday and as these two guys hashed out their differences, the thing that ended up happening in the end was they walked away, shook hands, and they actually ended it by having a friendly conversation and a friendly interaction. And it occurs to me that we all like comfort, but sometimes confrontation is necessary. Because what does confrontation do? It brings correction into our life. Sometimes we don't like to receive correction, but sometimes we need confrontation in order to receive the correction that is necessary. Now, let's take that thought and apply it to the gospel. I think that all of us love the comfort, the message of comfort that the gospel gives us. And there's something to be said for that. There's comfort to be found in the gospel message. How many know that when this life is over, if I am in Christ, I have all of heaven in front of me, and that brings a sense of comfort to my heart and my spirit? But guess what, the message of the gospel isn't always a comfortable message. Sometimes it's a confrontational one. Because on, on occasion, the gospel will call me to a place of correction. It says, Zach, you're out of line. You're on the wrong path. You're going in the wrong direction. And the gospel doesn't come for me where I, where I am. It confronts me where I am and says, you need to make changes. And we have to be willing to accept that and understanding that while the gospel, gospel does bring comfort, sometimes it will also bring confrontation. So. With all of that said, I want to just quickly lay a primer for where we're going today and talking about the confrontational gospel. Mark chapter 16 is where you've been waiting for me to get to. And In Mark 16, Jesus has gone to the cross, risen from the dead. He's about to ascend to the right hand of the Father. And this is Mark's account of what we call the Great Commission. Notice these words, verse 15 of Mark 16. And Jesus said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Everybody say Gospel to every creature, and he who believes and is baptized will be saved, everybody say saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. Now there's two words that we just repeated right out loud that are very, very important that I wanna highlight for a few minutes here. The first one is the word gospel. When we see the word gospel in the New Testament, the original Greek text uses the word euangelion, which means good tidings or good news. So. I think most of us, if I had asked you, what does the word gospel mean, you would have said good news, because that's the most common understanding of it. But let's just zoom out for a moment, and let me ask you a question. What makes the gospel, or more specifically, what makes the message of Christ good news? You don't have to answer it out loud, just think about it for a minute. Like, if you ever walked up to somebody that didn't believe what you believed and said, I want to bring you the gospel, I want to bring you good news? Did they look back at you like, I didn't know I needed good news today? Doesn't mean that they don't, but follow me for a moment. See, here's the thing we have to understand. I can't understand the value of good news unless I first know the hopelessness of bad news. I can't know the relief of a solution unless I've known the turmoil of a problem. And I won't understand the clarity of light if I haven't first experienced the confusion of darkness. The point I want to make to you this morning is that the gospel is good news, but the reason it's good news to us is because we come face to face that we live in a world and a mortal human body that is constantly plagued with bad news. The gospel's confrontational. It brings good news to us, but it, face- it brings us face to face with our surroundings and, more specifically, our sinfulness. Now, that's where we see the word gospel, but that second word that we repeated is the word saved. How many of you, when you say the word save to a non-believer, they're like, saved? What were you saved from? Were you in danger? Were you at risk? What was the threat? I don't understand save. Did somebody rescue you? You know, like that's kind of how people hear that sometimes and it becomes common vernacular for us. And that's okay, scripture uses the word too. But when we see the word save in the New Testament, the Greek word here is of course sozo, which means to save, to keep safe, or to rescue from danger, How many people are able to look back and say, that's exactly what Jesus did for me? He saved me, he rescued me, he took me out of harm's way. But watch this. If we say at salvation that we got saved, what is it exactly that we have been saved from? See, I can't understand the value of a life raft if I haven't experienced first the danger of the rapids. And I won't know the value of a lifeguard if I haven't first been swept away by a tide. And I can't be rescued if I can't first acknowledge that I am in danger. All of us love a gospel message that brings us comfort and tells us that there's hope beyond the grave. And that's good and that's true. But sometimes before we get to the gospel part about comfort, we have to first deal with the gospel part that confronts us in our imperfection. And that is why Jesus went to the cross to pay a price so that we could be redeemed. So. I wanna to talk today about how the gospel confronts us in two different ways in our Christian life. Are you ready for this? Two different ways that the gospel confronts us. Here's number one if you're taking notes. First of all, the gospel confronts us in our sinfulness. The gospel confronts us in our sinfulness. I know some people sat down this morning in church and like worship was good and we got through that part and now we get to the message and we're talking about sin and a confrontational gospel and you're like, should I have just stayed in bed? Was this the right day to come to church? Sometimes we have to deal with the confrontation before we can experience the comfort. The gospel of Jesus Christ will confront us in our sinfulness. Now, I want to take you to two passages, two stories in the New Testament in the life of Jesus that I think helped to bring this to life. And I'm going to tell you right up front that these two stories are very, very familiar stories here in our church. So, John chapter 8, starting in verse 2. Now early in the morning, Jesus came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees, these religious leaders, they brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. And now Moses and the law commanded us that such people like her should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing Jesus, I would have written trapping Jesus, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and he wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear them. So when they continued asking him, Jesus raised himself up and he said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one. Beginning with the oldest to the last. And Jesus was left alone. And the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one else but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. So go and sin no more. Important words. Go and sin no more. And then finally verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, in this story right here, Pastor Gary actually referred to this just a few weeks ago in one of his messages. In this story, we see a group of religious leaders confronting a woman in her sin and then bringing her to Jesus so that Jesus could be a part of this confrontation, And there's really two pictures of confrontation that are happening here that I want to highlight. The first one, of course, is the woman who's been caught in the act of adultery. Now, these religious leaders, they grab her. It says it's early in the morning. They take her to Jesus. Now, it's important to understand the overall theme of the story. Because when this woman comes to Jesus, what she is probably expecting, knowing that she has committed a sin in their custom and culture, she's brought before Jesus after the religious leaders kind of nab her and take her away. They take her away and she's probably anticipating that Jesus is going to be just like the other accusers. She gets there thinking, they're all accusing me, but now they're taking me to him. He's probably gonna be the final straw who puts this thing over the top and they're all gonna stone me. They're all gonna kill me right here, for the sin that I've committed. That's probably what's going through her mind. But the beauty of the story, of course, is that Jesus stands not as another accuser, but instead Jesus stands as her advocate. Anybody look back and say, man, I'm so glad that when I came to Jesus, he didn't accuse me of the things I was already guilty of. He stood in the gap as the advocate. Now, this is what I wanna point out to you very quickly, and this will help us to kinda get through this passage with a full understanding of the gospel in this moment. When this woman comes to Jesus expecting that, she gets something she's not expecting. Several years ago in my home church, the the church that I met my wife in, we had a very well-known pastor that came in, and he preached from this passage of Scripture in a church service one night, and he talked about how Jesus is not the accuser, Jesus is the advocate. In fact, Revelation 10 or 12, I believe, says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren, And so when she gets there and she encounters Jesus, she finds that he's not like the other guys accusing her. Instead, he stands in the gap as her advocate. And that's true. But I left service that night after hearing this pastor preach that message talking about Jesus isn't the accuser, Jesus is the advocate. And this one thought kept going through my head all night long. How many people came to church tonight, heard that message, and walked away thinking, it's okay to live my life the way that I want. Jesus isn't going to accuse me of anything. Instead, he's going to be my advocate for me living my life the way that I see fit. And what we have to understand in this picture is that it's true, Jesus was her advocate. But we all have to catch this as Christians, that Jesus will always be the advocate of our soul, but Jesus will never be the advocate for our sin. Meaning that when we come to Jesus, he doesn't wanna just forgive us and wash us clean, he wants to set us on a new path so we don't walk the same way in which we came, we walk down the path that he's called us to. Jesus is always the advocate of our soul, but he will never be the advocate of our sin. And when you get to the end of the story with this woman and her her interaction with Jesus. You know, Jesus looks around her and he says, where are your accusers? After he told them, let you who is without sin cast the first stone. Then he writes in the ground and they start to move away. And she says, I have none. He says, I don't condemn you either, so go and sin no more. In other words, you found grace, you found forgiveness, and all of it is calling you to a new path, not just saying it's okay to go back to the old one which you came from. And we gotta catch that. Now, I wanna just say this real quick. Every time we tell this story you know, of Jesus, he tells them, you who's without out sin, you go ahead and cast the first stone. First of all, we have to remind ourselves that in this moment, Jesus could have picked up a rock and started throwing because he was without sin. But Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. He stands in the middle as the embodiment of the kingdom of God that has now come. And Jesus doesn't have to answer to the law because Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. Now, I know that that's getting a little bit deeper, but I feel like every time we talk about Jesus writing in the dirt, after church, somebody will come up to me and say, so you know what Jesus wrote in the dirt? And I'll be like, I don't know, but you're about to tell me, huh? And they'll say, yeah, what Jesus wrote was. Listen, scripture makes it totally unclear. We're absolutely assuming and guessing at what Jesus wrote in the dirt. But what we know is he wrote something that made them all back away. Now get this picture. This woman's being confronted in her sin, but as soon as they walk up and are accusing her and want to kill her because of her sin, Jesus points out their sin, and suddenly the ones who were bringing about the confrontation are now being confronted by Jesus as well. And what it shows us here is that Jesus is calling all of us face-to-face with a gospel that will point out all of our imperfections. Once again, we love a gospel that comforts, but sometimes we don't like a gospel that confronts but I can't walk into Jesus' rescue, I can't walk into Jesus' future, I can't walk into Jesus' comfort unless I first receive his confrontation, which calls me to a new life. He looks at the woman and says, go and sin no more, and all indications are that she received grace and said, I can't stay on the same path. But he gives the same opportunity to these religious leaders as he confronts them in their sin. And we don't know how many of them may or may not have received or rejected Christ, we're not really sure. But the one thing is clear, When we come to Jesus, he will accept us as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us in that condition. We say all the time in church, come as you are, come as you are, come as you are. And that's true. You can come to God just the way you are, but guess what? You can't stay the same. He's calling us to a new life. He's calling us to a new path. And there's something about an encounter with Jesus that confronts us but tells us there's comfort to be found if we'll receive his correction. I wanna read this to you in a bit of a different way because I think it's important to understand this. This story reveals to us the grace and the love of God. See, the grace of God is displayed in the fact that God will accept us just as we are, but the love of God is displayed in the fact that he doesn't want us to stay the way that we came. We have to receive God's grace, but we receive his love and we choose to also follow him down his path. Now. I wanna give you one final observation from this story right here, and give me some grace in how this is received, because part of it might be a little bit delicate and sensitive, but hear my heart for a minute. When I read this story of the woman caught in the act of adultery, I gotta be honest with you, there's a bunch of red flags that pop up in this story. <laughs> because where are all the ladies at? Ladies, raise your hand. Ladies, you get a raw deal in this one. Because the scripture says that the woman was caught in the act of adultery. Quick question, if there's an act of adultery taking place, doesn't it stand to reason that it takes two consenting parties in order for there to be an act of adultery? How many people were taken back before Jesus? Just the one. So they let the guy slide, where's the dude in the story? He gets to skate, but the woman is taken before Jesus, accused of her sin, and she's about to be stoned right there near the temple. I mean, red flags all around. That's the first thing that stands out to me. But the second thing that stands out to me is that these people were preying on this woman and taking advantage of her. Because they found her in her most vulnerable state. When scripture says that they caught her in the very act, it also says that they caught her early in the morning. Can we just use our imagination for a moment and think about the amount of plotting it took to catch this woman in the act of adultery? Can you imagine these religious leaders stepping into the house and ripping her out of the house and taking her? She can probably only reach over and grab a bed sheet as he's taken out the door. She's taken before Jesus and we only can guess and use our imagination to know what this scene really looked like and how ugly it probably was. Here's the point. We see all this and there's something that stands out to me. First of all, can we all just come into agreement right now that when the woman was caught in the act of adultery that what she did was wrong and sinful? Can we all agree with that? So it was wrong. It was wrong. But the religious leaders come and it's as if they're trying to right a wrong or correct a problem. And here's my next question. When the religious leaders confronted this woman who was in the wrong, did they handle the situation the right way? See, we all learned in school when we were kids that two wrongs don't make a right. And what we find out here is that these religious leaders, they weren't trying to bring about the justice of God, they were simply trying to uphold their own self-righteousness. Here's the point I want to make. We can read this story and be like, dang, first century Judaism, these people were savage. They were dragging people out of their homes, into the street, convicting them of sin and stoning them without trial, without representation. Not only that, it was super unjust. It was totally unequal. I mean, they bring the woman forth, but they don't confront the guy. I mean, seriously, what kind of slanted justice is this? And we look at that and we say, man, I can't imagine anything like that happening today. But the truth is, it happens all the time in the world in which we live now. And I said, "Where are you going with this Zach? Follow me." In the first century nation of Israel, if you will, the land of Israel, the prominent religion, of course, was Judaism. Today it's not the prominent religion in the United States of America. If you were to take a poll, many polls have revealed this, that people who claim a religious affiliation in America will say that their religious affiliation, most of them, is some form of Christianity. Now whether or not we're all living that out is a whole other conversation, because I think we can agree that if everybody was living like Christ, our nation would look a lot different. Here's the point. The religious leaders look at this woman's sin and they say, bad, sinful, evil we've got to eradicate this plague of sinfulness from our society we should kill her and their solution is just as unjust as her sin and see we live in a nation right now that religion I don't think people are truly living out some sort of great spirituality in fact and this is my opinion here but I think the most prominent and prevalent religion of our day is something called secular humanism where we reject the idea of an absolute power, an absolute deity in God who gives us absolute truth from his word and instead we adopt our own form of truth which is called subjective truth where what feels good today is good. What feels right today is right. If it feels okay today, then we're gonna call it okay even if that's a different thing tomorrow. And we say there's nothing absolute, it's all on a sliding scale of what makes me feel right today and what, 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 what I believe to be true. This is why we have people using the phrase your truth, live your truth. Can I tell you something today? There's no such thing as your truth. There's only God's truth. And everything else is an attempt to attain his perfection. Here's the point, though. We live in a world that is plagued by evils. Agree? I'm sorry if this is, I'm not trying to call out specific things for the sake of being, you know, insensitive. But we live in a world that is plagued by evils. When somebody walks into a crowded building with firearm and opens fire on innocent people. It's an evil, and we should do the same thing the religious leaders do and say it's wrong, it's bad. But we have to take a different approach because the approach we tend to take when we see these evils in our society we see injustices, we see abuses of power, we see racism, we see inequality, we see these things happen all the time, and we look at it and say, I know what we'll do new legislation. Vote for this candidate. Endorse this political party. You know what? We've been doing that same thing for decades and even centuries. And where has it got us? With the same problem on our hands. Because what we do is we try to take imperfect people creating imperfect solutions and and applying it to the imperfection. And we're left with constant imperfection over and over and over again. And as long as we reject the truth, the absolute truth of God's word, we will always be applying imperfect standards to the problems of our society, expecting things to change. And guess what? They're not going to change. We say, if we could just eradicate hate, if we could just eradicate hate, we can't eradicate hate because hate is not the root problem, it's symptom of the root problem, which is the sinfulness of humankind. And if we reject that notion, which is what the Judeo-Christian tradition has told us from the very beginning, then we embrace this idea that humanity is inherently good, and through legislation, through social justice efforts, we can fix things, we can redeem ourselves. Can I tell you something, there's only one thing that will redeem a sinful, lost, and broken humanity, and it's the blood of Jesus Christ, and nothing will change until we submit to the power and authority of the bloodshed at the cross. Not putting down justice efforts, those can often be good, but sometimes we find that they're imperfect, why? Because it's imperfect people trying to fix a problem. And only the blood of Christ can cure the things that ail us in society. Where am I going here? Let me show you a couple things. We have to be very careful, especially as Christians, not to fall into the trap of believing that humanity is inherently good and we can redeem ourselves. We can't. This is the way scripture shows it to us. Jeremiah 17. In the Old Testament to New, we see this. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We see in the New Testament, Paul writes these words in Romans 3 that all of us have sinned and we've all, everybody say all. We've all, that means everybody in the original Greek, We've all fallen short of God's perfection. But watch this. Paul doesn't just point the finger. Look at how he personalizes this. Romans 7, he says this in verse 21. I find then a law that evil is present with me. And the one who wills to do good, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. In other words, everything inside of me wants to do what's right according to God's word. But I see another law in my members. My body tends to go in a different direction. And it's warring against the law of my mind, the thing I've given over to Christ, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Watch this, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And finally, in verse 25, what's the answer? I thank God I can be delivered through our Lord, Jesus Christ. And Paul recognizes, as a human being, I'm fallen, I'm imperfect, I'm sinful. I can't save myself. There is no act, there's no deed that's going to save me. It's only Christ who can bring about redemption in my life. I'm going to say it one more time. There is only one solution to the sinfulness of my human condition, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed at the cross of Calvary, And as long as we reject that in the secular world in which we live, we will never find the cures for the things that ail us. I know that sounds like bad news. As I was saying a second ago, it's confrontational. Say, so Zach, we can talk about the gospel. The gospel is good news, right? Yeah, the gospel wants to bring us comfort, but we find comfort on the other side of confrontation. We have to recognize that we're imperfect people. We are sinful humanity in need of a savior. Now, I'm gonna give you a quick transitional thought here because I think this helps to where we're gonna to conclude today. I was listening to this awesome interview with a pastor, a very well-known pastor, who was telling a story of how he got saved. And he was a non-Christian. He was dating a girl who was a pastor's daughter who had been a Christian like most of her life. And he's telling the story of how one day he's reading the Bible, he's searching out God and he finds scriptures that just really grab hold of his heart and he said, I just felt like the spirit of God identified with my spirit and the dude actually came to Christ while reading his Bible as a non-Christian. And so he turns around and he's, he, he's like telling his friends, he's like, man, I've had this radical encounter, this great thing has happened, I've given my life to Christ. And he says, one day I'm reading through the scriptures and I'm reading this one verse and there's this one word that pops out at me and it's the word fornication. And he's like, fornication, what's that? (laughs) Has no idea. And he said, I did the first theological thing I've ever done. He said, I looked up the root word, the original writings. What does that word mean? He said, and I look and I find that the word fornication means sexual activity outside of the marriage covenant. And he said, oh my gosh. So the first thing he did is he grabs his phone and he calls his girlfriend. And he says, we gotta get together like right now. He said, we met at a coffee shop and we sat down and I brought my Bible and I looked at her and I said, You're a pastor's daughter. You've been a Christian for a long, long time. I just got saved. I've gotta tell you something. She's like, what? He says, we've been fornicating. (laughs) And she says, I know. He's like, no, we have to stop. We can't continue on this path. I've just given my life to Christ and everything in scripture tells me that he's calling me to a higher way and to a better way of following Jesus. And so they came into this agreement where they made a decision together that they were going to stop the way they had been living and go in a new direction. Here's the reason why I tell you that story. Because on one hand, the gospel will confront us in our sinfulness. But that leads us to the next thing. The gospel also confronts us in our complacency. The gospel confronts us in our complacency. If you're taking notes, that's the second thing. Try to abbreviate this as best I can to save some time, but Luke chapter 18. Luke 18 In this passage of scripture, what we see is that Jesus has this encounter with a man that we know as the rich young ruler. It's one of the most famous stories in Jesus' ministry. Jesus encounters this man and in verse 18, it says that he looks at him and he says, good teacher, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus has a quick response for the rich young ruler. He says, why do you call me good? Why why do you call me good? Do you see me? as good in the way that another human being would look at another, one human being would look at another and say, oh, you're, you're just generally inherently good. But Jesus goes on and he says, no one is good but one, and of course that is God. What you see in this conversation is that Jesus is testing the rich young ruler. He's saying, are you calling me good according to your standards? Are you calling me good according to God's? Because if you're saying that's who I am, you're saying that I'm God. And the rich young ruler comes face to face. It's a confrontation where he's having to decide and make up his mind, who is Jesus to me? Now, this conversation goes on and Jesus tells him, here's what you're gonna have to do to inherit eternal life. He says, you know the commands. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal. Bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he said to Jesus, all these things I've kept since my youth. Now, if you wanna study this out later, read all the commands that Jesus didn't say and ask yourself the question, was he keeping those? It's a great mystery, but then he goes on and he says, "You lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven." And then, come and follow me. What's that a picture of? It's a picture of him choosing a new path after this encounter with Christ. This is all confrontational for the rich young ruler. When he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich, and though. When Jesus saw that, they, that he had become sorrowful, he said how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard this said, who then can be saved? Now, when you look at this story, there's one main theme here, and it's simply pointing out that Jesus saw the rich young ruler's idolatry, how his comfort, his prosperity, his prosperity, And his status had become an idol in his life. It had become the Lord of his life. And that's really the main theme that we see here. See, I think when we read the scripture sometimes, we can look back in hindsight, and it becomes really easy for us to point out the failures of people in scripture. We're like, well, thank God I'm not like that guy. But can we just be honest for a minute? I think most of us would trade our problems for his. So I'm like, man, I got all kinds of issues going on. If this guy's issue was he had too much money, I'll trade problems with him today. Scripture calls him the rich, young ruler. He had a problem. He was young. I wish I was young again. I'd take that problem. says he was a ruler. He had authority. He had power. I feel like I don't have authority or power over anything. Just to get a taste of that power, that sounds nice. I would trade my problems for his right now because the rich, young ruler, when he comes to Jesus, he brings with him his status. And Jesus wants to deal with the idolatry in his life. But here's the thing I want to point out to you this morning. His comfort had become an idol in his life. And we might sit back from a distance, read this story, and say, man, that guy, he was a sinful man, wasn't he? Man, his comfort just became his idol. Let's just be honest for a minute. I think that we all actually relate to this a little bit more than we might want to admit. We live in a nice middle-class community here in North America. We live in the most prosperous nation the world has ever seen in a day where we can have things delivered to us that we bought online tomorrow. I mean, we live that microwave Amazon life where I want it now and I can have it in an hour. I mean, I was blown away at how fast Instacart showed up this week. I'm like, what a time to be alive. But isn't it amazing how often our comfort can turn into complacency? And here's the thing I want to point out to you. I think one thing that a lot of us have in common with the rich young ruler is I think when the rich young ruler went to Jesus, he wanted to know, how can I have eternal comfort? But I think one of the things the rich young ruler really wanted to know was, Jesus, I've got a good life. If I give it to you, how can you make it any better? And I think for a lot of us, that's our attitude toward God, maybe even toward church. That sounds nice, and I love the hope and the comfort that I have in eternity, but Confronted with some of the changes that might require me, the big question is, if I do this, God, what can you add to my life that's gonna make it any better than it already is? Because things ain't so bad. And when we find ourselves in that place, we can go from comfort to complacency and it can become this idol in our life. And what does Jesus do? Jesus says, well, if you wanna have eternal life, then you're gonna have to be willing to sacrifice comfort today for a comfort tomorrow. And scripture says that when he saw everything he was gonna have to lay down, he said, no, I don't think it's worth it. He said he walked away sorrowful because he'd rather choose earthly comfort than lay it down for heavenly comfort. Now here's the deal. These two stories are pictures of the gospel not just bringing us comfort, but literally confronting us in our sinfulness and confronting us in our complacency. How many people came to church today to hear a message about bad news? Nobody did. But I can't understand good news unless I first understand bad news. I'm a fallen, sinful man who's in need of a savior. I cannot fix myself. I cannot redeem myself. There is no act. There is nothing that I can do that is going to fix the things that really plague me, which is the sinfulness of my human heart. And I can get so comfortable in life that I can look at God like he's my sugar daddy, just adding one more nice thing to my life. But at the end of the day, God doesn't want me to live in comfort that turns into complacency. He's looking for me to live my life the way Jesus did. Laying it down for others and choosing a different path, not just my own path of comfort. All right, so here's the good news. (laughs) How do we go from that place of sinfulness and that confrontation to stepping into God's comfort? There's two answers, you ready? first one is confession scripture says in first john 1 9 if we confess our sins he's faithful and just faithful and just he brings justice to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness can i tell you something god wants to invite you into a life that doesn't look like the one that you, you you brought to him he wants to forgive you redeem you and then walk you into a new life but it all begins with confession. And I love how 1 John 1, 9 starts with one word, if. If we confess our sins, then he's faithful and just to forgive us those sins and to cleanse us. If we will confess, God, I've missed the mark. I've been living life my own way. I've been walking on my own path. I've been going in my own direction. If we will confess, he will forgive. Why? Because he's faithful and he's just and he wants to walk us into a new life. But the second part, is this ever important word of repentance. You see the word repentance in the New Testament, it literally means to change your mind. But every time you see the picture of repentance in scripture, it goes like this, a change of mind that results in a change of direction. I wanna tell you something this morning, my friends, God loves you too much to leave you where he found you. He's so good that he says, come as you are, Bring me your mess. You know what's crazy about God? God's the only one I've ever known who can take a mess and turn it into a masterpiece. You ever seen that art that's made out of recycled stuff and you look at it and you're just like, how in the world was somebody able to make something that beautiful out of a bunch of trash? If you think that's beautiful, you should see what God can do when you give him your mess. But it starts with confession. God, I've missed it. This is all I have to give you is my imperfection. And God says, that's okay, I'll take it. I've already given Jesus so that you can be justified. He's gracious enough to receive us as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us that way. Father, this morning, we come before you. And that's our humble confession that we are imperfect people. We are sinful people in need of a savior. When we think about your gospel, we recognize that we love the idea of it comforting us in eternity. But sometimes it confronts us in our sin. It confronts us in our complacency. So in this moment, Father, we just take this opportunity to confess to you that we've missed the mark. We're broken. Our heart is sometimes deceitful, taking us in the wrong direction. When we follow our own desires, what we find is that it takes us down a different path other than the one you've called us to. So we confess that to you today. Not only that, Father, today we repent. God, we ask that you would change our mind. We pray that we would absolutely accept your word and your truth as being absolute in our lives so that it can change our lives and we can walk into the life that you have for us. God, we thank you for your grace that receives us and accepts us, but we also thank you for your love that wants to change us from the inside out and make us into a new creation, just as the scripture says, more into the image of Christ. Today we confess. Today we repent. We walk away from the path that we've had in the past. And as soon as we meet you at the cross, we choose to follow you into all that you have for our lives. That's our confession. That's our prayer. We give you our mess. Take it and make something beautiful of it, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Clean it up nice, try to hold it all together I'm living rich in the world but a spiritual bag And I've been waiting to give till I can give you something better But you just want my heart So here it is, all of it Will you take it in this condition? Here I am, fully surrendered
0: God, we surrender it to you this morning. Father, we look around, we see the things that you're doing in our lands and our nation and the world today, and we don't wanna miss out on what you're doing. God, we know that seeing you use us and move in our midst, Father, is all an act of your goodness and your grace, but we also recognize that it starts with our repentance and our confession. God, turn our hearts to you. As we give you our attention and our focus, we choose your path. We don't wanna come to the cross, receive forgiveness, and walk away on our own terms. We come to the cross, we receive you, and we follow you into the life that you've called us to. We confess our imperfection. We ask that you would change our mind and change our direction, and we follow you forward in Jesus' name. Hey, with heads bowed and eyes closed, just for one more moment, maybe you're here today, you heard this message, and it, it does sound a bit confrontational wasn't spoken for the sake of confronting people really just because the gospel confronts us in our imperfection. That's bad news to know that we're broken, imperfect people, but the good news is God sent Jesus, his one and only son, his sinless, spotless son to this earth to go to the cross and pay a price, death that we deserve for our sin. And if we would put our faith in the sacrifice that Jesus made, we could receive forgiveness and redemption and we could walk into the life that he has for us. The beauty of it is that when Jesus died, he didn't remain there because three days later, God raised him from the dead, conquering death, hell, and the grave so that you and I would not have to face it. The good news also is that on the other side of this confrontation is the comfort of heaven, knowing that when you choose to follow Christ, you'll find everything he has for you in this life and you'll know you'll spend eternity with him when it's over. We're gonna pray a prayer right now and I wanna invite anybody who maybe never made a decision to follow Jesus just to pray this prayer. It's not about magic words, it's just about the commitment in your heart. I'm gonna say these words right out loud and I wanna ask everybody in the house to repeat them and mean them with everything inside of you. We Repeat this and say, Jesus, I thank you for going to the cross for me. I believe that your death was full payment for my sin and I believe that I have been forgiven and redeemed. So I choose to follow you from this day forward into the life that you have for me and into eternity. I thank you for this good news that saves me. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Hey, very last thing before we go, if you're here this morning and you made a decision to follow Christ, maybe you're even watching online, there's instructions online of how you can get a tool that we wanna give you called The Next Seven Days. But if you're in the house, we have prayer teams gonna be right down here near the front of the platform. Just walk up to any one of our prayer teams. Let them know you made a decision to follow Christ. They'll give you this book, this free gift. We don't need anything from you, but we are here to help you to the best of our ability. If you need to go quickly at the end of service, just stop by the next seven days desk. It's right between the glass doors. Let them know you made that decision to follow Christ. They'll give you the book and help you get started in your walk with God. We are glad that you made that decision. Listen. There is no better decision you could ever make in life than to choose to follow Jesus. And we want to welcome you into the family of God. Can we just put our hands together and welcome people today? Amen. God bless you. We love you guys. Have an amazing Sunday. Have an awesome week. We'll see you in the house next weekend.